you so far for this morning. We thank you that we can sing. God, I thank you that we can open up your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would all learn a lot. I pray both for the kids, and I pray also for us as adults. God, may we learn a lot. God, and may we desire to change. May you change us, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, so kids, you guys can run off to Jimmy Jazz. All right, guys, it is so good to open up God's Word. It's so good to teach God's Word. And uh, last week we had an awesome time together uh, in Mark 1, verses 17 to 45. So we worked through a lot of verses. Today we're just going to be picking up in Mark 2, verses 1 to 12. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Jesus and the scribes. Now, uh, just a word of note, uh, this story, which we're reading in Mark 2, 1 to 12, is also found in the books of Matthew and Luke. In Matthew, it's chapter 9, verses 2 to 8. And in Luke, it's chapter 5, verses 18 to 26. So when we read this story, what I've done is I've also taken some of the details that were given in both Matthew's account and in Luke's account so that we can understand the greater picture of what Mark 2, 1 to 12 is trying to tell us. Another note of caution. Um, When I say the Greek word for this, the reason I'm telling you that is because the New Testament was written in biblical Greek, okay? It's different than the Greek nowadays, although you will see in Greek nowadays, some of the references that are similar, some of the roots of those words are similar. But if you were to go, I I was asked recently, hey, I'm in Greek. I'm going to totally know what the New Testament says now. And that's not completely accurate because it's a different form of Greek, as you can imagine. So we are, when I say a Greek word, just know that this is the word that the original text was written in. And the reason that I give that word is so we can understand the exact meaning of why that word was used by the biblical author so that we can understand in a greater perspective what they're actually trying to tell us because sometimes our English translation doesn't give us the full grasp of what they're actually trying to say. Um, As I showed you a slide last week, I want to show you it again today. Mark, in essence, is broken up into two sections, okay? Mark, uh, as we're working through it, um, is broken into two sections, chapters 1 to 8, and what, we're, what Mark is trying to present to us in chapters 1 to 8 is that the king is here, and his name is Jesus. There was a promised king that prophecies had been given from thousand years before that a man would show up, a king would show up, and he would lead his people. Now, they had certain expectations of what that king would be like, so Mark's just trying to tell us in chapters 1 to 8, the king is here, his his name is Jesus. In the middle, we're, when we get there, it's really the hinge uh, when Jesus actually reveals completely his identity. The second part is the king is here, but he's not the kind of king that you were expecting. And Jesus is going to blow the top off of all of our understandings of who this king is. Now, let's get into Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, as we are going to be doing continually, potentially, in this book over the next, who knows, year. We'll see what, what happens. We'll see how long it takes us. But we're going to work through line by line so we can understand in a greater capacity what it is Jesus is actually saying and what it is he's actually doing this morning when he heals a man. So Mark uh, 2 verse 1, we read this, prior Jesus cleansed the leper and his um, what's happening is the word of Jesus and his miracles are, are now traveling. People are hearing about him. Jesus is now having to teach in the wilderness, and people were coming out to him to hear him teach because there wasn't enough room for him when he was actually in the towns. So Mark 2 verse 1 says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
He was at home. Now, here's a bit of a map so we can understand in greater detail what we're talking about here. Um, this is kind of the full map of much of Jesus' ministry. At the top, we have Capernaum, where Jesus is now in this story. Uh, to give you an understanding, we have the, the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea there, which you can still, you can obviously visit these places, Mediterranean Sea on the left, and then Jerusalem in, is in the bottom corner. And what we read in this first section of Mark is Jesus is doing his ministry throughout Galilee. So so this is kind of the area of Galilee. I just wanted to show you that larger map so then you could get an idea of where we are zooming in now into Galilee. And Jesus, we're told, is in the surrounding areas of Capernaum. Uh, and Capernaum is now known kind of as his ministry center, where Jesus, as it tells us, was at home. Now, uh, return to Capernaum after some days is a reference back to Mark 1, verses 38 to 45, that Jesus is out teaching in Galilee and the surrounding areas. And now Capernaum has, in in essence, become Jesus' headquarters uh, for ministry. The words reported, uh, in essence, mean it was heard. There's a rumor, and it is spreading. And then when we read the word home, this is critical. It's the Greek word oikos, which is a temple, a house, a temple, or dwelling, a building consisting of one or more rooms, which serves as a dwelling place. Uh, we are understand that this is also the home of Peter, who is one of Jesus' disciples. Peter and Jesus, um, we understand, potentially lived in the same place. And you can actually go to Capernaum and visit this. So this is um, a picture, in essence, of what Peter's home would have looked like in the center, and now this other structure that's kind of been built around it. Uh, architecture, some of our trades guides can see, is very different nowadays when they build homes. But this is, in essence, what it is like. Uh, apparently, there is um, a viewing deck now actually built above Peter's house, uh, which people understand is Jesus' house. So when you go to Capernaum, you can actually visit this place that some people expect and assume, which is where Jesus was. So Jesus was out. He's now back uh, in Capernaum, which is his kind of headquarters or his home. I love that word home, oikos. And it says this in verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Many were gathered together is the Greek word synago, uh, which is the original word, and it simply means to gather in one place. Now, hospitality uh, in Eastern culture was very, very expected. So we don't even read that these people kind of sent along a little request, hey, can we show up? It was understood that in that culture, you would simply have to be hospitable if somebody opened up your home. So these people aren't waiting for an invitation. They're just saying, we're going. Jesus is home. We are going there. Uh, Luke uh, 15 verse 17, which is another telling of this story, tells us that on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So what this uh, telling is telling us in Luke is that Pharisees and scribes are there all the way from Jerusalem. So when I showed you that first map, we're now in Capernaum, there are Pharisees and scribes who are the religious teachers of the day that have said, I'm hearing about this Jesus. So Jesus' name, what he's teaching, is spreading through that entire region. And they're saying, we've got to go hear this guy. Word has spread. Rumor has spread. We've got to go hear this man teach. Now, as we'll find out further into the passage, the scribes are there in the house. Uh, This house is said to have been able to host probably about 50 people. But beyond that, people had to be outside. All right, so about 50 people. And the scribes would have had their, their, 
their interest has been so intrigued that they probably got there first so that they could get in the house and have like front row seats. All right, and as we're going to experience here in a, in a couple of minutes, um, this is key because they're there and they don't exactly like what Jesus is about to say. Jesus is a bit of a rebel. And the detail of no more room, not even at the door, is a graphic detail given to us by Mark. Um, in the Greek, the double count, compound negative in the Greek intensifies the negative, which means this house door apparently opened into the street, not into a court as in the larger houses. Last week, um, we saw a picture of what the typical homes were like in those days, where it was kind of a multiple dwelling where 30 to 50 people would live. This house is different. Um, in the Greek, we, we can take away that this is smaller. So in essence, Mark wants us to know that. Why does he want us to know that? Because the place is packed, it's inside, and there was a jam outside, unlike other houses at the time. And Jesus is simply preaching, um, and he's preaching the word, which is laleo, which is to speak. Uh, this just takes note of the sound and manner of speaking. Um, this is what one author says, which is beautiful about Jesus. It says this, The beauty of his voice, the charm of his manner, and the tenderness and love in his countenance must have come to this weary, sick group of people as breath from heaven. As we talked about last week, he taught with authority, not as the scribes do. The scribes in those days would say, as Moses said, or as Rabbi this said, this man Jesus speaks differently. The verb is in the imperfect sense, emphasizing continuous action. Expositors comment on the tense of this verb as as follows. Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom when the following incident happened. So Jesus is in essence teaching talking to people in ways that they've never heard before. Many people are gathered. The place is packed, and he's preaching the gospel. So what can we, in essence, take from this story already? Number one, Jesus ministers out of the home. It is critical for us to understand this, especially as a church that gathers midweek in our homes. We do not have a physical building that is ours because we believe that our homes are to be our places of ministry, that we welcome people into them, that we have been blessed with our homes, and therefore we bless others with our homes. Uh, one of the other things that I've often said, and some of you heard me say it, I don't want to pay a mortgage on a building when all of us are probably already paying mortgages on our homes. There's no sense to me in that. And when we have a building, we give ourselves less reason to do ministry in the home. And we are a group of people that constantly wants to be ministering out of our home because that's the way Jesus did it. Isn't that a beautiful detail that we're given? Then Jesus was at home and he welcomed people in. It's awesome. Uh, number two, Jesus is not afraid of crowds, <laughs> okay? Uh, he's not afraid. The house is packed. The surrounding area is packed. Some of us maybe don't like crowds, okay? That's a bit of like our social anxiety. I don't know about the crowd thing. Jesus loved crowds. He wasn't scared of them. He got involved in them. Now, there is a time and the place, obviously, to be in a crowd. This is one of Jesus' times, and he's welcoming people in, but Jesus is not afraid of crowds. Uh, the next thing is Jesus likes a good party. You can't not like crowds and also not like a party. We read in another telling in John that Jesus... Um, turned water into wine. So this Jesus character is somebody that we should enjoy. He welcomes people into his home. He lets lots of people into his home. He provides for them, and he likes a good party, okay? And then uh, fourthly, Jesus preaches gospel truth regardless of who is present. This is key as well, that Jesus is standing there preaching the word to them, letting them know this is the truth, and he doesn't care that these Pharisees, these people are probably like, we'd rather you speak it this way. He's like, no, regardless of what you think, I'm going to preach the truth, even if you're here. 
I know you've come from a long way. I know it took you a while. I don't care. I'm preaching gospel truth. All right, this is a lesson for us that regardless of who is present, we are called as Christians to speak the truth, to not be afraid of it, to speak the truth into situations. Because as we will see, this is how Jesus' name and word is spreading, right? It wouldn't have spread if he was simply standing up and saying, Moses said this, da-da-da-da-da. No, he speaks with authority, speaks the truth, and as a result, people respond to Jesus, all right? Verse 3, and they came. Who? We will find out. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get him near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. All right? The Greek word for bringing is phero, which means to carry some burden, to move by bearing. A paralytic is paralyptikos, which is affected, characterized by paralysis, lame, or paralyzed. So this group of four men bring to Jesus their paralyptikos friend who's lame and paralyzed. These guys uh, stepped out in faith. It says that they removed the roof above him. In those days, the homes, this particular home, we're not told if they used a ladder. Some of them often had the staircase that they would go up um, onto the top of the roof. And these friends see it as such a need to get their friend into the presence of Jesus that they're going to go up this roof. They're not going to let anything get in their way. They go up to the top of this roof. Um, They remove the roof roof above him. The Greek word there is apostagazo, which is to unroof, to take the roof off of the house. Um, this usage is renders only one part of the roof, however. So the typical word usage of that Greek word is the whole roof is coming off. These guys aren't taking the whole roof off. Like, can you imagine being in the house and you're hearing Jesus teach and all of a sudden, whew, what are you guys doing? But they do open up a bit of this roof. Now, what is the construction? Because obviously, what did they get up, what get up there and what did they have to go through? Well, in those days, it was a composition of mortar, tar, ashes and sand which is spread upon the roofs and rolled hard and then oftentimes grass would grow in the crevices on the houses of the poor in the country the grass grows even more freely and goats may be seen on the roofs cropping it all right so can you imagine in those days you're kind of you know walking down the street and you like look up and here's this this home and there's goats on top of the house like like we get upset sometimes when squirrels are on our home can you imagine like a full goat. Actually, in our house, there's two doors down. There's people with goats. And for the longest time, we thought it was like a domestic situation because they're like screaming at each other. Like, rah, rah. like it's, it was the most annoying thing. We, we later find out it's goats, only in the ward, right? Um, as we read about this in the Luke account, it actually tells us that uh, there was also tile. So there's tile on the top. They're getting through the mortar. They're going through the tar. They're going through the grass. But their ultimate goal is to get their friend into the presence of Jesus, And uh, we will learn from this lesson as well. But I believe that our goal should be that as well, to bring our friends, regardless of what is in front, regardless of the barriers, into the presence of Jesus. This bed is krabatos, which is a mattress or couch, and they let it down most likely by rope from the four corners of the bed. All right? Jesus is teaching. There are too many people around. We've got to get our friend to the presence of Jesus. He is paralyzed. He cannot move. Jesus, we believe he can take care of this situation. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man 
speak like that. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, what's interesting to note first as we work through this is that Jesus sees their faith. All right? It had to take faith that you're going to unroof this house, my home. Come on, guys. You're going to bring this man, let him down, but he sees their faith, which is this really weird word name. Uh, it goes pistis, which is repeated in all three tellings. So clearly the faith of these men in both the Matthew, Luke, and Mark account is critical to the telling of this story. Um, and their actions were the visible evidence of their faith. It wasn't enough that they just sat at home saying, I wonder if Jesus will stop by one day. No, they were like, we've got to get our friend to Jesus. Um, When Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, the word sin here is hamartia, which is to act contrary to the will of God. Now, this is pretty crazy. Like, he's let down through the roof, and Jesus doesn't simply say, get up, take up your bed, and walk. He starts with the sin first. He says, you've got a sin issue. Now, multiple Uh, scholars and theologians, as they study this passage, will say that this man's particular sin or this man's particular um, issue, the healing that was needed, was a direct correlation to his sin. Not every physical ailment that people receive is a direct consequence of sin, but in this case, there is. And so when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, um, the astonishing thing both to the paralytic and to the four friends is that Jesus forgave his sins instead of healing him. And as a result, so when he says forgiven, which means this, and this is important because forgiveness, I believe, is an issue in our culture that we as Christians got to get right. But forgiveness means this, to leave, to give up resentment, to put away, to grant relief from or payment of, it's forgiving guilt of a wrongdoer, not necessarily the wrong itself, removing the guilt associated with the wrongdoer. Forgiveness, this is key, is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. So Jesus does this. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this, to the scribes, is not a good thing. Now some of the scribes, scribes, as I said, were recognized experts in the law. There were 613 laws that a good, faithful Jew would follow. And so these scribes made it their job and their duty to know all 613 and obey them to the T. All right? So they're sitting there thinking, Hmm, this kind of runs contrary to one of the things that it says in the law. And they began questioning uh, what Jesus is and what he is doing. They say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Uh, Blaspheming is to defame God by declaring equality with God. It was seen as harmful by the Jews because it was diminishing the nature of God to say that, I have equality with God was to say, well, you're not God, so that can't be the thing. So Jesus is doing something pretty significant here, and they're not wrong um, to have an issue with this. In Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, it says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So in this context, which they're thinking back to, only God can forgive sins. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I am, I am, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So therefore, Jesus is revealing something of his identity when he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Completely contrary. Scribes are upset. They're appalled. You can't say something like that. Basically, it was what they're thinking. You've disobeyed the law. Why did I travel here from Jerusalem to hear you blaspheme God? 
basically is what he's saying. Now, what does this tell us? What can we know? Firstly, in the first verse, Jesus responds to the men's visible faith. All right? Um, deep, number, what, is, what is their visible faith? One is their deep concern for their friend. They have a deep concern for their friend. They're not simply, as I said, staying at home. They have a deep concern. They did not simply pray about it. This is key because some of us, when we go through things, we're not willing to take the visible step of faith for something. We'll just sit and pray about it. Sometimes God wants you to step out in faith and do something about it. Faith, if you get the Daily Devo, as I said today, is an inward conviction followed by an outward action. It's not simply fine just to have faith in here, but to not actually do something. These men showed a visible faith. They were willing, no matter what the cost was, which leads us to our third example, is that they overcame difficult circumstances to get friend to Jesus. When we have a visible faith, we will do whatever it takes. No matter the roof we have to go through, no matter the roof that we're kind of wrecking, no matter the hole that we're creating, no matter how embarrassing it is and may be to get our friends to Jesus. Um, Second point about Jesus from these verses is that Jesus sees people's needs and responds as he sees fit. This is important because to the guys, their understanding would have been Jesus responds to the healing that is necessary. But Jesus responds as he sees fit, which is he responds initially to the sin. Because Jesus sees the spiritual need first, so must we. And what is it? Now, in this section, I want to talk about what is sin. Because when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, clearly he sees that as the greater issue than the fact that this man is paralyzed. So what is sin? Number one, sin is this. Sin is living independently of God. When Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, they say, God, we don't want to do things your way. It's basically saying no thanks to God and feeling God's commands are a burden so you rebel against them. The root of this is pride. Saying, my ways, not your ways, God. If he did create, if all of this is his creation, then I would think that he would then have the right over how we are to live a part of it. So sin number one is living independently of God. Sin number two is self-protection. This is exemplified in Adam and Eve in the garden when they sin by eating of the fruit and then cover themselves because they recognize they are are suddenly naked. So they cover themselves with fig leaves. It's self-protection. It's self-deceiving, and it causes us to view ourselves as victims to blame anyone else for our own wrongdoing. Anytime you say, I need to figure out or protect myself in this situation, and you blame other people. Notice what the first thing, as we talked about last week with passivity, Adam does when God comes forth and he says, Adam, what happened? Adam says, the woman. The woman, and men have been blaming women ever since, right? The woman did it. Sin is self-protecting. Number three, what is sin? Sin is breaking God's life, law. It's the choice to deliberately break the revealed covenant of God. What he says is right. What he says is perfect. What he says is true. Sin is anything that is breaking God's law. Uh, The dictionary says this is sin. Any voluntary transgression of the divine law or violation of a divine command. It's a wicked act and it's iniquity. The scriptures use... 
four different words to describe sin. Number one, as we've already said, it's hamartia, which is missing the mark. Second word is adikia, meaning unrighteousness. The third word, is, third word is paraptoma, which is to trespass, crossing a known boundary. The fourth word is enomaya, which is lawlessness and a violation of a known law. Anytime we live contrary to the given laws and commands of Scripture. And then fourthly, sin is misdirected passion. The question is not, do you worship? The question is, what you worship? We were all created to be worshipers of God, and every single one of us, whether we recognize it or not, worship something. For some of us, it's our jobs. For some of us, it's our relationships. For some of us, it might be the gym. I know that I've been guilty of that before, where I go to the gym, and I believe that that is my God. That has become my idol. When we love something or someone more than we love God and others, then we fail to love God and our passion takes us away from God. And this, as the Bible declares, is sin. Now, what is sinful? If this is sin, what is sinful? Number one, idolatry, which could be exchanging and replacing the proper object of worship. Again, as I said, sin is misdirected passion. Number two, Worshiping created things in the place of God, which is the sin under most of our sins, which is idolatry. And then other things that are sinful, bitterness, sexual immorality, worry, laziness, gluttony, lust, drunkenness, selfishness, anger, and abuse, and a multitude of other things. Anytime that we choose to do something contrary to what God has led to us in his word, we have chosen to sin. And the Bible tells us that we are sinners by nature. We are born into it. I'm sure some of you who have had kids or know little kids are like, I did not teach that child to do that, but they went and did it. (laughs) And right from there, you're like, oh my goodness, this thing is so sinful. It did something it was not supposed to do. Now, what are the results of sin? This is important. Number one, it destroys people made in God's image. God created us in a certain way, and when sin happens, it destroys people that were made in God's image. Number two, it separates creation from the creator, the way he created it to be. Um, It's what necessitated and eventually caused Christ's death. Sin is not something that we laugh at. Sin is not something we scoff at. Sin is not something we celebrate because God saw that sin was such an issue that he decided to send his own son, who was perfect, to die at the hands of sinful men to take upon himself the consequences of our sin. This is the result of our sin. And sin is a serious issue to God. As I've said, so much so that he needed to send Christ to earth on the cross. Now, what are the consequences of sin? And some of this, I would not be a loving pastor, I believe, if I did not share with us what is the consequence of sin. We've seen the results. Many of us have experienced the results in our lives or the lives of those around us of sin. But what is the consequence of sin? It's the wrath of God. And what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil and all its forms and manifestations. God is so perfect and holy that sin cannot be in his presence. 
This is why prior to the creation of the world, when Satan and his angels rebelled against God, God said, I cannot stand you in my presence. I'm casting you down to earth. This is why when Adam and Eve lived in perfect relationship with God in Genesis 1 and 2 and they sinned, God said, I'm casting you out of this beautiful garden that I have created for you. And now from here on out, everything will be affected. I gave you the law, I gave you the command, and you've chosen to walk contrary to it. And as a result, there is consequence for sin, which is the wrath of God. And this can be experienced through one, passive consequences of sin. So some of us have made decisions that, as it turns out, were not wise ones. And so as a result, there are some of those consequences that we experience, that we feel. And then there's other things which are God's active judgment on sin. Which, as we will get to, is why God needed to send Jesus. Now, why wrath? As I've said, God is utterly holy, and his holiness compels him to recoil against anything and to oppose evil. Wrath exists because sin and evil exist. If sin and evil did not exist, God would not need to be wrathful towards it. And thirdly, why does wrath exist? Because of justice. What do you do for the person that has experienced abuse as a child? What do you do for the person that is that abuser? What is the wrath towards what they have done? Death, punishment, hell. Unless that person turns their faith and gives it over to Jesus. Now the scriptures tell us that all of us have sinned. Some of us have a moral compass or an understanding of if I go below this morality or this moral choice, we've all had that situation. So when people say, oh, I, I, I don't sin. Okay, what is your moral line? Have you ever gone below it? Well, yes, of course. And as I described what sin is, I'm sure every single one of us at some point or another have crossed the line. And so the scriptures say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the scriptures also say, for the wages of sin is death. But this is the good news. What does this have to do with me? Number one, as I've said, whoever does not receive God's mercy is an object of God's wrath. This is why the message of Jesus Christ is good news. Because we are given a way out through faith in Jesus Christ. If somebody does not, then they are guilty, deserving of the wrath towards that sin. They face the punishment of their decisions. But when someone gives over their lives to Jesus, that changed. All have sinned, as I've said, in nature and choice, and all sinners are on the path to death. Now, this is heavy, isn't it? This is heavy. But this is again why Jesus came. This is again why Jesus did what he did. And this is again why we have given, been given the beautiful message of Jesus so that we can share this with other people. To the atheist, they simply try to convince us because they don't think there can be a God. When we try to convince atheists, we're trying to convince them that if what we believe is true, then it's imperative for you to get this. To the atheist, there's not really much imperative because what in essence do I lose? I live my life for other people. Sure, I maybe didn't spend all of the money that I was given. Sure, there were times when I did things, but ultimately when I give, what I receive is joy, right? How many of us have had that experience? We give and so therefore we receive joy. Our message is important. It's good news because of what Jesus Christ has done, which leads us to this, which is grace, which is unmerited, 
and the undeserved favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. What this means is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you do not receive a reward, you receive a gift. Because when you put that faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You continue to sin. But he continues to love. He continues to go towards you. You are propelled towards his love and propelled towards his grace. And that's incredible. That is the message that we believe. And so when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, as you can imagine, this is good news. He maybe doesn't get it at first, but this is good news. Verse 8, let's continue on from there. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So Jesus knows what they're thinking. Jesus knows that they're saying, this man is blaspheming. Why is he doing that? So this is what he says back to them. You never question Jesus because Jesus always comes back with a better question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. I'll describe what he's doing here. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. What happens? Let's first start with which is easier. Jesus is an expert at asking tough questions. He's also setting up the scribes mentally for what he is about to do spiritually. On the surface, get this, on the surface, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's hard to prove, right? Your sins are forgiven. Oh, are we going to be able to see that? No. Whereas, when he says, pick up your bed and walk, it's harder on the surface because it's tangible visibly. So if Jesus is to do that healing, it's the harder thing because he would actually have to do it. On a deeper level, it is harder to forgive sins because God, only God can do that, and it's at the cost of Christ's death on the cross. Then Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This term son of man is very, very important. It's a messianic title used 14 times in Mark's gospel, 80 times it's used in Je- of Jesus in the gospels. And the Jews knew that the, tide, the title was suggesting of back thousands of years before that a man would come releasing and setting his people free. So when Jesus says, I am that son of man, people in essence are saying, what? You're that guy? This is the first time where he's saying this. And as we see here again, when Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, this is the Greek word as we talked about last week, which is exousia, which is the power to act. And he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home, which are the Greek words, egero, aro, hypago. So imagine Jesus actually saying that. Egero, aro, hypago. Pick up your bed and go home, which is the cultural reference. If Jesus was in fact to heal him, the cultural reference is the guy would literally have to pick up his bed and go home with his mat, which would be a sign that the healing actually worked. What happens in verse 12? Get this. And he rose and immediately, thank you, Mark, immediately, Euthus, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. 
scribes and all. We've never seen anything like this. So what is, are these verses here at the end telling us is, number one, Jesus claims to be the Messiah and having equality with God. By saying your sins are forgiven, he's in essence saying, I am God. Hey, Cohen, how are you? <laughs> you little smirky boy. He's in essence saying, I am God. A lot of us might like the fact that Jesus, uh, whether we recognize it or not, much of our culture now is built around the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus, what are you up to anyways? He's <laughs> wandering around. No worries, Taylor. It's not a big deal. Paul, don't worry about it. Do you want to sit there, Cohen? Yeah? Okay. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> That's great. When Jesus claims to be the Messiah, he's saying, I have equality with God. Now, many of us like the teachings of Jesus, but we don't like the fact when he says, I'm God. If Jesus is who he says he is, this changes everything. As C.S. Lewis, yes, the writer of Narnia and many other good works said, Jesus was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was in fact Lord. So he couldn't have just stood there and said, yes, this is the way that it is. He couldn't have just said, this is the way that it is. Hey, but. He had to, in fact, say, this is, in fact, the Lord God. Number two, Jesus is claiming power and authority to forgive sins, and then he proves it. Maybe we'll just wait, because all of you are watching him. (laughs) Here's a point about what Jesus did. Jesus chose the harder thing first, the forgiveness which could not be seen So he now performs the miracle of healing, which all could see, that all could know that the Son of Man, Christ's favorite designation designation of himself, to claim the Messiah in terms, was that he really had the authority and power to act, to forgive sins. He had the right and he had the power here on earth to forgive sins. So when Jesus says, which is easier? Clearly, it would be easier to say you forgive your sins and the harder would be pick up your bed and walk. But what does Jesus do? He performs the harder so that you have to understand that he's also performing the easier. If he can do this, then he certainly can do this. And Jesus is claiming that upon himself. And the next thing is really important is that Jesus' miracle causes people to glorify God. When we see Jesus act, when we see God do incredible things in our midst and around us and in our church, it should cause us to glorify God, to point to Jesus. And anytime this glorification points to ourself or our own gifts, it's for our own good and benefit and it's not towards God. There are many things that you will hear and you will see on television about people doing things in the name of Jesus, but it's doing a lot to glorify themselves. If it's an act of God by the power of the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus, it will glorify God and not some human. That is why when we gather here in Church of the Ward and people come to know Jesus, decide to put their faith and hope and rest in him, We celebrate Jesus. We don't celebrate what we are doing. In everything, we must keep ourselves under the radar so that we can make much of Jesus Christ. Because if it's not about him, then it's a complete waste. Because as the scriptures say, this church will fade away. There's this song uh, called Cornerstone that goes, um, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's a good song. 
let's believe those first few words. Because so often we say, my hope is built on nothing less than my church and its righteousness. Don't you dare believe in this church. If this church tomorrow were to cease in existence, my hope is that it would not change any of you at all. That you'd continue living for Jesus, that you'd continue living on mission, and you'd continue to make much the name of Jesus. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate communion. And communion is the opportunity that we were given as Christians to celebrate what Jesus Christ accomplished for you and for me on the cross. This, in much of our culture and in much of religious settings, particularly in the Catholic Church, has been a way for people to have it their first communion. So they suddenly are at the age where they can have their first communion and they're given it. That is not biblical. It says nothing of that in the scriptures. It says in the scriptures that if you have received and declared your faith in Jesus Christ, receiving his gift of salvation and not trying to win it on your own accord, then you may participate in communion. And so what this means is that anybody that has put their faith in Jesus this morning can partake in communion. What this also means this morning is that if you have never done that, you can't touch it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, the writer of, of Corinthians, who writes to the Corinthian church, heard word because communion in the first days, there was a similarity of these emblems, but they also would celebrate it more around a larger meal. And there was word that there were people in the church with the wine were drinking it and getting drunk. They would come to the meal simply to fill their bellies. And so communion had just become kind of this commodity, this thing that was just kind of done, as it has now become in many of our churches. And what he writes to them, he says, you have defamed God by taking it in that manner. He says, the way that you take communion is through this way. Don't you dare do it the other way. And we read that there were actually people sick in the church and even dying because they were taking communion the wrong way. As I touched on earlier, there are some sicknesses that are the results of sin, but there are some that are not. And we might never know which ones are and which ones are not. But this is why we must seek forgiveness in Jesus. And this is why communion now becomes not just this ritual that we kind of integrate into our life as a church, but it becomes a celebration of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us because there is wrath and there is condemnation. The bad news is somebody has to pay for your sin and it will either be you or you can give it to Jesus because he said he took it for you. The message of Christianity is ridiculous. Whoever goes out of their way to do something for you that you don't deserve. I heard it explained and illustrated in this way. There was a man who was in a concentration camp. And one night, a bunch of prisoners decided, let's escape from this camp. They were caught. And so what the Germans wanted to do to make an example of these men is that they said in the morning, they said, we are going to kill 10 people at random because of what has happened last night. You try to cross us, we'll cross you. And so what they did is they had all the guys line up in their rows and they just started listing off 10 men. And the 10th name was this man that tells the story. And the guard came and got him and started dragging him. And he said, if I was going to die, I wasn't going to go down without a fight. And he starts kicking and screaming and starts yelling and says, my wife, my children, you can't do this to me. You can't do this to me. They continued to drag him forward. And just then he heard a man say out of the crowd, could I take it for him? 
Could I take it for him? And the guard said, ten names is ten names. Come over here. And they let this man live. When the war ended, this man moved back home. And every single year, that same day of remembrance, he took the day off, built a little memorial in his basement, and would sit there commemorating what this man gave to him because he recognized that every single breath that he took from that point onwards was a gift from the man that took his life and took the punishment. This is the message of the cross, that Jesus... The Son of God who was perfect, who did nothing wrong, that in his humanity was like you and me, fully human, but yet did not sin. So that when he went to the cross to take the punishment on himself, he was without blemish. He was perfect. If Jesus had done anything wrong, he would have been getting the consequences of his decision, which is the wrath of God. But because he was perfect, he could take it upon himself. And as 1 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, it says that there, that he took upon himself the sin that was rightfully ours so that we could stand in righteousness with God. Some of us have seen the show Trading Spaces where one person goes from one house to another house. The consequences of that person's dirty mess is now on you and that you might get someone that's cleaner. Jesus, what he does in the cross is he takes that dirty house upon himself and has prepared for you a beautiful home that is awesome. He takes all your sin, all your dirtiness, all of your saying, I'm going to do it my way and not his way upon himself, giving us life so that one day when we die, we don't have to experience the consequence because someone has to deal with the consequence of your sinful choices. And you will either decide that it's going to be you or you can decide opening your heart up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I owe you everything because you took it upon yourself for me. And what do you do in response? You simply live in obedience to him because of what he has done for you. That's all. And that's ridiculous, and that's scandalous, and that is grace. And that's the message of the gospel. It's good news. It's not some good advice that says, live this certain way and you'll receive this. It's good news that says you receive and you're given, not because of anything you've done. So what I'd like for us to do this morning as we do after all of our times together is I'd like to get us into groups. I'd like us to pray for one another. I'd like us to have a time of confession, of repentance. Repentance is our response to the gospel. When we hear of what Christ has done for us and we get it and we understand the craziness of that grace, it causes us to say, well, I'm probably going to keep sinning and I sinned this morning already and oh my goodness, because you're a sinner by nature and choice and you simply repent, which means one, to return home the way it was supposed to be, the way God created and designed it and to change your way of thinking. You don't get the cross unless you repent because you don't realize that you've done anything wrong and you don't deserve the grace that you've been given. So let's do that. Let's get into groups. And then what I'd love for you to do, Aaron, if you would mind just kind of playing in the background to give some privacy and some noise behind this. But what I'd like you to do as a group then is to come forward together. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to come forward and you can take communion together as a group. And what I'd love for you to do, because this is a family meal, this is a family celebration, is to hand the emblems to each person and simply say, this is the gift of grace given to you. So let's do that right now together. As I said, this is beautiful, but let me just open us in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for who you you are. We thank you, Jesus, that you forgave the sins of this man. 
God, I pray that we would recognize that there is forgiveness in nobody else other than you. I pray that we would recognize the consequences, Lord, of our sin. And we thank you, Jesus, that you took those consequences upon yourself, nailing them to the cross and then becoming resurrected three days later. God, this is where we put our hope. This is where we put our faith. This is where we put our trust. May it be in nothing else but you, Jesus. This rest of this world and all of its gifts and all of its glories will fade away. But you, Jesus, will remain forever. Break through our walls of our hearts this morning. May we understand this grace and may we respond to it, understanding the gift of breath of life that you provide to us. Understanding that we now, Jesus, will live eternally. We do not fear death because we know that when we die, we are going to be with you. And that is great because this earth is filled with pain. It's filled with sin. It's filled with consequences of that pain. But Jesus, when we leave this earth, we're in your perfect presence forever. Back to the way it was supposed to be in Genesis 1 and 2. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Uh, Let's pray to close our time. I'm actually going to ask Anthony too. Let's pray for your friend Brian because you talked about their thing about pulling the plug, but let's pray that God heals this guy so that when they pull the plug, he's going to survive on his own. All right, let's pray for that right now, okay? God, we thank you that Anthony's with us this morning. Jesus, we pray for a miracle in the life of Anthony's friend Brian. Jesus, we pray that, Lord, if and when they pull the plug, God, I pray that even before that, God, that his body would start being able to care and to work for itself. Jesus, Holy Spirit, come. We declare healing over this guy, Brian, God. And if this, Lord, takes place, God, may we give full glory and honor to you. Jesus, come. Heal, we pray. We thank you, Lord, that you give the authority to us as the church to pray for this, God. And so, God, we pray for healing right now for Brian. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing life to our bodies as you raise this man from the ground, God. You tell us that we too can be raised from the dead beds, Lord, that we find ourselves in. We thank you, Jesus, for what you're up to. We pray for this. We thank you for it. Thank you for this time that we could be reminded of your truth. Thank you, God. Amen. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Next week, we are... uh, going to have another prayer time here. So you're welcome to either gather in your missional communities and pray, or you're welcome to come here and pray. Uh, I'm speaking at another church in another city. And then in two weeks is Baptism Sunday. So if you have committed your life to Jesus, you need to get baptized. It's a step of obedience. It's going to be awesome. In two weeks, it's going to be Easter Sunday. So invite your friends. Apparently, if there's one time that you can invite your friends and they will come to church, it's Easter. So uh, get them here. Uh, It's going to be awesome, all right? So Easter Sunday, two weeks. Love you guys, and have an awesome week. Let's help each other by cleaning up.